What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of FilmmakerU.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and every week we interview a film professional to explore the craft of filmmaking. And of course, this week is no different. I'm interviewing Florian Hofmeister, the cinematographer for Pachinko, Great Expectations, and was recently nominated for the Oscar for Tar. We sit down to discuss his approach to creating the spectacular visuals for Pachinko. Imagine crafting visuals for multiple generations between two cultures. Well, that was Florian's challenge. Now, don't worry, I know what you're thinking. What about Tar? Well, you don't have to worry because we are sitting down to discuss Tar with him. We're just trying to work out a time that works for him because he is pretty busy at the moment. Now, if this interview is something you really enjoy, be sure to check out FilmmakerU.com's courses where we bring in the best in the industry to discuss their craft and show their secrets. These industry experts include Eric Whip, the colors for Mad Max, Fury Row, three-time Oscar-winning VFX supervisor Rob Legato, award-winning doc producer for HBO Sam Pollard, and so much more. Of course, when you're on the page, anything you want to buy, if you use the code THE CUTTING ROOM, all one word, THE CUTTING ROOM, when you check out, you'll get 10% off. Now, with all that said, let's hear what Florian has to say about Pachinko. So I guess I, I'd love to talk to you about Pachinko. So like, how did you get involved? How did you start? this project what was what was your sort of connection to it i knew um so you the showrunner from uh another show we did uh, a little a series called the terror which we photographed or we produced it in 2017 in budapest an adaptation of a dan simmons novel of the same name and uh, that story took place in um actually takes place in the arctic but of all places we had to shoot it in budapest on a um on a soundstage and hence I think we established quite a good creative relationship early on and I knew that she was working on Pachinko so uh, a couple of years later she did send me the scripts and then arranged a meeting with Koganada the director and uh, we got along really well and and then it, it took a while for them to sort things out but you know I the entry was through her. So when you get scripts for a show like this I guess I've, you know, because I've never DP'd a show, obviously. Um, do you get to choose your shows or do they place you on the shows? Like which episodes they want? No, I mean, um, the production will actually contact you for a certain block. You know, that would be the, in, in my, generally it is um, the structure is that the first block, which was my block and the, in, which includes the pilot, will actually set the look. So there's a lot of creative exploration and a, a lot of creative development will actually happen in prep for the first block. And then the second or third or, you know, whatever comes after oftentimes uh, um, basically works along those guidelines established by the mm -hmm. creative team of the first block. So personally, I am, I kind of live by the idea that I mostly, I, I, will, I, I mean, I won't rule it out completely, but say as a general note, I would only take the first block. So, and having shared this creative uh, experience from the terror, which was a very intensive form of prep to actually sell that stage as a mm. naturalistic space in the Arctic, it was clear when Sue contacted me that she had the first block in mind and that we were to, you know, embark on a similar creative journey to develop the look of pachinko so when you because you you had a um there was another cinematographer on this shooting the other episodes do you involve them in any of that discussion or do you 
uh, or do they just pick up from where you're you're going? So normally it would be the case that we would have established a form of Bible and the second block would basically, you know, out of courtesy as well as um, uh, loyalty towards the show would basically uh, take most of the stuff we had developed on board. And this particular show, I felt uh, personally, I felt this uh, was a different case because you had Koganada as a director and then you had Justin Sean as a director for the second block. Mm-hmm. And Justin brought his DOP Ante Cheng and they had a, you know, a history. I think they've made four or five films before. They're very strong indie filmmakers. And um, I always felt that, you know, Koganada as a director for whom form is almost a way of thinking. And mm-hmm. Justin comes from, you know, very much from an actor director point of view so emotion i guess is paramount for him so i always felt that if you were to press these you know uh, two very different filmmakers into this into um you know the constraints of like a what they call a unified vision or a bible you would you would lose a lot of um, emotional and visual variety so i very much from the beginning i lobbied for a system where the second block would not necessarily have to work along our lines you know for example Koganada and I we never felt handheld was an appropriate choice for the stuff we did whereas um, uh, Justin and Auntie shot tons of handheld Koganada and I felt that the timelines that the Pachinko is establishing should run almost seamless so you almost have the feeling like you don't really know in which timeline you actually are Mm -hmm. for the later episodes uh uh, justin and Auntie opted to actually differentiate to use only certain lenses in certain time periods and you know i always felt that uh, the show would profit almost from a different interpretation as to you know establish something that just runs uh along and is uh you know meant to look the same well, and it goes over so many different eras or generations. How did you guys come up for the look of the film, especially when it might change based on the era, based on the set decoration, the costumes, all that stuff? Uh, yeah, Koganada yeah. and I talked a lot uh, about that a lot. Um, and uh, also with Sue, of course, uh, who at, uh, due to the pandemic, she would prep remotely. So she would dial in from the States in these mm-hmm. Zoom conversations we had. And Koganada and I, and then later Justin and Antti, we were all in Korea and, and prepping on the ground. The idea was, or, or our starting point was, of course, you've got these really strong different timelines, the 20s uh, and the 80s. And the question is, and you have a, a story that are in, in one way interactive, so you see how the past informs whatever happens in the present, if you consider the 80s the present. I think like almost on a spiritual level, you could say that these, you know, the interaction between these two, between these characters and what has happened to them, to them in those timelines is so intimate that you could almost say it's like one time. You know, so Koganada uh, always uh, uh, stresses, and I think I've really uh, embraced it as well, that he also thinks that space, that cinema is as much about space as it is about time. No, we always, always think of it of, of time because, you know, it tells a story and, you know, there's a day and there's a night. But we started to think about it more in terms of space and we almost disregarded the timelines. We really wanted it to feel like it's almost like one time. And uh, that, of course, 
sounds philosophical at first sight, but what that meant is like we wouldn't have different looks for the different time periods. And the different feel of it would be created by the production design and the makeup and the costume. So the camera would have one look. Then the next step is if you talk about space um, in digital cinematography, uh, you know, we can now work with large format cameras. So the, the actual interesting thing for me, and I've shot large format for quite a while now, is not necessarily the so-called resolution that everybody goes on about 8K or 6K. Yeah. It's more the sensor size in relation to the lens will give you a wider field of view. So if you look at my hands, and this is, I see the field of view on a 16 mil camera, and between yeah. my palms is the negative. If the negative gets bigger, the field of view gets bigger. That means that I can, you know, say if I had a 50 mil lens on 16, you know, this is say this is the field of view. Now I put the 15 millimeter lens on a larger format. This is the field of view. That means that I can do a portraiture, uh, which has a graphic element, an iconic element. If you think of large format, you know, even in stills photography, Hasselblad, yeah. you know, you get this graphic idea, but at the same time, you also get a lot of space around people. So if you want to make a piece about space, the next step would be we choose large format. So it was clear digital photography, one look, and then um, large format. And then we went about and did some research and I came across a couple of things that uh, really um, interested me is uh, Bert Glynn's photography, Magnum photographer, and Gordon Park, uh, Gordon Parks as well. And I looked at some stuff that Bert Glynn did um, in the, I think the 60s and early color photography in Japan. And, and there's this ectochrome stuff that, mm -hmm. you know, you have a richness in color that's not necessarily muted, but certain colors feel a bit muted, you know? So it isn't a, a, a desaturated look, but it's something that has a lot of complexity, but some of it feels a bit uneven. So the reds might be stronger than the blues or something. So um, we sh started shooting some tests and I tried to involve the uh, grader who will do the finished mm -hmm. grading very early. So there's a fantastic grader, world famous man, Tom Poole, um, <laughs> who has a fantastic reputation. He's an amazing guy. And we did Antlers together. So uh, Tom was involved. And then, you know, we started testing costumes. And then we came up with this quite photochemical look that, uh, that kind of has this richness while still f feeling, you know, subtle and photochemical. That's what, and, and actually, we only had this one lot. And then, you know, everything was shot with that. I have a lot of questions now. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Was that too specific? <laughs> no, no, it was fantastic. It was just like, in it, I was just like, first, you know, like, oh, I haven't heard about a Hasselblad in a couple of years. And like, um, I think they went digital. Um, but I do want to know, like, because you talked about that old film look from the Japan series. And you know, when you're capturing stuff on film, it's very, um, it's almost like a live, like the grain is going to change every time, that type yeah. of thing. Whereas yeah. I, and, and I might be wrong about this, but I feel like digital, we're capturing everything and then tweaking it in post. So how did you get that look? Was it more, it was primarily working with your colorist, Tom Poole, or... <laughs> You know, I, what I tend to do, what I, because I grew up with, um, uh, fortunately, with um, 
you know, film. I was educated on film in the first roughly 10 years I shot, you know, only film. And then digital came along, which feels like a lifetime ago. And, 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 and I, I still remember that everybody in the cinematography uh, world was quite anxious because you had to have, you know, a digital experience to shoot digital. And I was thinking I will never work again. And strange how this transition actually has happened. But um, what I, I kept on holding on to is the um, discipline of shooting film. So I always use a line meter and I um, spend a lot of time in prep trying to figure out a system which, you know, um, exposure and, and color wise, which I will then just see through. So it's not about capturing it and then later on finding it. I've, I uh, have always tried to be as specific with the look as I can. Now, with the, um, in the past three to four years, or maybe five now, the, the so-called color pipeline, so meaning, you know, like we shoot something, um, we put a look on it, it comes to the edit, it comes, it gets assembled, it comes back into the grading suite. That pipeline has become really stable. You know, there used to be times when we shot film and then it was transferred because uh, uh, the editing was already happening digitally. You, you, you never really saw your image in the same quality, you know, again, until you actually came to the final grade. Now, mm -hmm. these days, the color pipeline is so stable that I can shoot something and I literally, an exec, can see it on an iPad, yeah, almost yeah. real time, and it will look exactly the same. You know, you just have to hope that he switches off the light and doesn't sit at the kitchen table. But in essence, it will look the same. So the interesting bit about that is if you then create a lot in, uh, in pre-production, that I would then have all the monitors would be lutted with that LUT. Um, and I would, def I would expose, of course, within the constraints that I knew with my light meter, or if I were to work by eye, then off the monitor. But I will already work in the color environment that I have decided to work in. Mm -hmm. And um, because, and also, in, which is more important than color, because color is easier to change, but I will also work in the contrast environment that I'm already, that I have decided to work in. Because if I were to alter contrast later, you know, it will affect the entire image, you know, in one way or another. So I try to stay really truthful to the contrast and um, have the entire color pipeline organized and lutted so that basically um, by the time people arrive in the edit, it will look the same. And by the time we will actually finish the final grade, we will start from the same point. Mm. And I personally think apart from the technical um, aspects of that discipline, I think it's also tremendously important psychologically because you've got so many people in the process that are involved in judging the image in judging the edits that um, for example a show like the terror that I did with Sue was so strong we went for a bleach bypass look if you start introducing uh, you know people uh, within the production environment to that look by the time you come to the final grade they have been watching rushes that look different for eight months yeah. So it'll be like a shock, you know? So I feel that if you, if you find what you want, it's good to actually stick to it and make it get people used to it as long and as early as you can. So that then when you finally make it to the final grade, you can then say, oh, let's be a bit braver, for example, you know? Mm -hmm. 
my other question that came to my mind was, you know, Korean cinema is just booming right now and has been for the last 15 years, I would say. Um, so did you turn to like their, their cinema for any inspiration or even their history for in, any inspiration? Um, um, yeah, no, I, it has, you know, I personally on a very uh, human level, I'll just, I found it a tremendous privilege to be able to go to mm -hmm. Korea and shoot this, you know, because for a, a, a cinematographer or for, or for me personally, working as a cinematographer, curiosity is, uh, and is such a strong energy behind intuition. And it's just tremendously rewarding if you find yourself in an environment that you don't know because there's so much to discover. Um, in terms of references, um, Koganada is an, uh, <laughs> I, let's call it, a of course, a disciple of Ozu. You know, he's mm -hmm. absolutely studied his work inside out. Uh, he also introduced me to um, Mizuguchi, so we were looking more at um, Japanese cinema for that sense. I personally also, which was more about composition and camera movement, I also try personally to kind of take things in and then just come up with my own, trying to articulate my own personal voice in the environment that I find myself in. Um, so those were just discussions we had on a formal level. And in the end, I think my job as a cinematographer on this particular project more than on others was to bring kind of an outsider's gaze to it. Mm -hmm. Because I think whilst it's a tremendously Korean story, it also has, you know, some universal elements in terms of how, you know, life gets uh, um, uh, decided over generations, how families, you know, last or have to go into... Uh, diaspora and you know so it's you know it could apply also to Germans you know with a country being separated reunited you know all these family connections that, that go over generations so I, I always thought that you know I wanted to bring that my gaze would maybe open it up in a more universal universal way which you know, in a, in, a, in a sense, doesn't really make sense because if you watch like a film like uh, Parasite, you know, it's very universal and it's completely Korean. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm just trying to talk myself into a, a form of importance <laughs> that doesn't exist. <laughs> I mean, what, what does exist, though, is what one has to say is that the production environment in Korea, as far as I was able to have an uh, insider look into it, is quite different. So the, uh, it feels like people will prep a lot longer than we would prep. So you would have the core team of, say, five or six people and that they would probably prep for eight months. And then they shoot terribly fast. We, in opposition to that, shoot not so fast. I mean, we still have to shoot fast because it's a television series. But um, we uh, leave more room for um, changes on the day and and. And, and we would also, we are more trained to actually prep it for, make some uh, significant decisions in prep, but then get the ship off the ground. And then we are expected to adapt whilst things are coming along. So, uh, you know, uh, passages could be rewritten, uh, stuff can be yeah. reshot, you know. And that is something I think in the 
industry that the Koreans were not used to. And it was good that, you know, a few people of the, the designer and myself came more from the Anglo-Saxon background because it was a bridge to, to help this, uh, you know, which in essence is still an US financed super tanker to, yeah. to smoothly glide through Korean waters. Well, and it's interesting because I remember talking to the editor of Parasite. He was saying that on set they even have uh, an on-set editor mm, yeah. build the cut and then just yeah. hand it off to the editor so that it's yeah. even fast in post. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, no, they. Um, I mean, you know, and we we watched a couple of uh, uh, Korean period shows, and it is absolutely impressive the pace at which you know they produce that. But it's yeah. uh, it's also uh, I don't know if you know. I think there's, you know, there's virtue in each way. You know, I, I would love to prep that long, but I also like the flexibility that we have, you know, that, mm. you know, some things are a bit uh, vague and they, you know, you feel yourself into them as you start producing. Was there a particular scene that was uh, difficult for you in this, in this show or uh, was hard for you to execute, but you're really proud of the outcome? Yeah, I mean, um, because uh, the uh, English is not, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of Koreans that live in America or, or live abroad, mm-hmm. and due to the uh, uh, pandemic, some of them had returned. So we had um, a lot of translators around, but in essence, there's lots of people in Korea that don't speak English. So, for example, my gripping team which were all Korean, they just didn't speak a single word. So, um, and if you set up a complicated crane move with a techno crane where you have to communicate over Bluetooth headset with like four people, uh, everything had to go through translation. <laughs> so um, uh, I was proud every day. Um, and every day, every day was a bit difficult, but it's a beautiful process as well, yeah. you know, because um, we had a translator um, that was dedicated to the camera crew who actually did not uh, have any filming background. And I, I actually looked for somebody with no filming background because this language is so specific um, and so hierarchical that if you sometimes, if you work with a translator who has filming experience, they might actually pass on an interpretation. So if you got this young oh, film student, you know, he will probably go, oh yeah, he means this and this. And then he'll just pass on. So it's like almost another DOP or another director translating. So we chose somebody who had no experience. <laughs> and it was amazing because yeah. she would uh you know after day three I'd explained her how a, a techno crane works. She would yell out those commands just as if she'd been a grip you know all her life. <laughs> But um, uh, there's that stuff technically, which was uh, that took place at the cove, you know, where a uh, young Sunja goes um, uh, to, uh, fi- uh, you know, um, uh, fishing and then also to mourn the death of her uh, father. That was an, uh, a, a technically just challenging because we what we knew we wanted to play it as one shot of her walking into mm-hmm. the water. It was very complicated to get a crane into that position. There had to be a gigantic barge that had to pick up the crane at Busan Harbor and then travel around and the crane had to be lifted by a crane onto the beach. And I, we spent literally weeks prepping that shooting day, you know, so, and, and I was, and I think it's a beautiful sequence when she walks in the water and the waves come. Yeah. There's, there's of course that, but then there's other, other sequences in the, in the piece, for example, in, I think it's app uh, three when 
Salomon goes to, to see the landowner and takes older Sunja uh, with him to persuade her mm -hmm. to sell. Um, you know, that's a very simple scene. He shot it in Vancouver on a stage, absolutely controlled environment, a built little hut, uh, three people around a table. So, I mean, there's, you know, you, you go to work and you know, you, 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 it'd be hard to mess that one up. And then you just think, oh, it's close-ups and, you know, and, or not, I might sound dismissive, but say it was very clear what the work was like that we were about to do. And then suddenly I thought that performance between these two older ladies and this, and then also the younger uh, Solomon in between them, you know, they, they, it is in essence a big reflection about what it means to be Korean. And there, and and what it means that you know, somebody like Solomon would, or Jinha as an actor would probably say, you know, his parents have gone through so much hardship to enable him this life that he now has. So this 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 combination of uh, responsibility, thankfulness, guilt, you know, and suddenly all that was in the room, and you yeah. just sit there and you film it and you feel the sorrow of these older ladies about whatever they have given up you know, personally, because uh, um, YJ, you know, the Academy Award uh, um, actress from uh, Minari, you know, she lived a hard life. Whenever she does interviews, she tells you that she only took the job to feed her two kids, you know, and Korea is a country that has gone through so much hardship economically as well. Now it's thriving, but they were poor people. Yeah. And you go to the stage, you sit around a table, you think you're only shooting close-ups, and it was just mesmerizing what was happening. So a lot of words for a simple scene. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned the pandemic uh, in there. Did you guys get hit by that? How did that affect you guys? No, um, I mean, that was a really interesting experience because I left, um, uh, so I, I reside in Berlin. That's where my family lives. Um, so I was leaving Europe in August, to start prepping um, and you know here we were still debating masks and you know all that what was happening in the in the public yeah. space you know was people are still trying to figure it out and I came to Korea and I still remember you know they would just get us you get greeted at the uh, airport you get separated you put on a bus they put you into a hotel you know and then we were tested you know and everybody in full hazmat and the way these people dealt with it was so different from anything that I had experienced. And it was so devoted to uh, protect, you know, mm -hmm. public health and the community from, it was crazy. You could walk, wow. you know, down Seoul at night, four lane highway, you know, somebody on the other side of the street walking by himself, they would wear a mask. It was just people would wear masks inside cars and the yeah. country was never closed down, you know, so they, they have a, very strong um, sense of community and hence we didn't run into any problems you know everybody is really strict regime and we never stopped now i have one last question for you we've been stuck in the pandemic for quite a while now uh you know depending where you are in the world different waves are hitting and different lockdown yeah. rules uh is there a show or a movie you've discovered over the last couple of years that you think people should check out on streaming services <laughs> oh yeah what you should check out is i i watched uh you know i got uh um, i have an access to the criterion channel i don't know if that's yeah. that's hidden 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 um uh 
it's a little commercial break here for the Criterion channel. I mean, <laughs> that is just gold, you know. And I, what I did watch in, what I rediscovered was, uh, I watched Andrei Rubilyov again from Tarkovsky, oh, which wow. is crazy film. You know, I always fall asleep yeah. halfway through, but it's, oh, it's just... Same. But, but I, if you I'll... think of it, you know, um, it's such a... Um, you, you you almost feel as if the filmmakers completely disappear behind the film. Mm -hmm. You're never aware, you know, of the who made it. Actually, it's like almost yeah. a piece of art that just it's like a monolith. So, and then in Korea, I did do watch some Misuguchi, you know, uh, Sancho the Bailiff and Ugetsu. And I mean, again, those are crazy films yeah. considering the size of camera. You know how they made that move, and so um, Criterion Channel. I would say just just join it, you know, get a subscription. <laughs> That's the best way forward. Yeah. And um, when I shot, because we shot half of it in Korea and the other half we shot in Canada. So when we came back to Canada, we had to quarantine for two weeks. And I brought my 16-year-old uh, daughter with me and she quarantined with me because she was only homeschooling. She could homeschool from anywhere yeah. in the world yeah. at that point. Um, and she watched, I think seven seasons of Grey's Anatomy <laughs> <laughs> in two weeks. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, that was the guilty pleasure. <laughs> I, I, I watched a bit of Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> I, in terms of the criterion, the Tarkovsky, it's just, he always had beautiful films. Like they were long and the pacing was really slow, but they were just like, I remember seeing Mirror at the Cinematheque. Mm. Mm. and it's just gorgeous i couldn't tell you what the story was right now but i just remember images from it uh, totally so and i think uh, you know it's just a reminder because what i felt when i watched um andre rubelyov is you kind of think oh that's always made for a big screen it doesn't really matter you know i watched it on my ipad and if you got a good viewing distance it's so you know they're they're the intent and the attitude behind it it's, it's meant to be so immersive and so epic it just yeah. uh, comes at you you know yeah i mean to see it big would be nice but you can watch it on a small screen absolutely well and i remember i saw a stalker at the cinematech too and they have that whole scene where they they can't fall asleep or else they'll sleep forever and <laughs> they're talking about sleep and I remember they were just talking and talking about sleep. And I look around and like half the place is asleep because they've been talking about it for 10 minutes. But, but there's, a, there's a little beautiful joke, as you know, to say to sleep in a film means to trust the film. So, you know, you oh, can only fall asleep if you trust yeah. it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for letting me interview you today. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. So that was my interview with Florian. I want to thank him for joining us. It was very interesting discussing Pachinko with him, and I'm really looking forward to discussing Tar. We're selecting a few scenes to break down with him. If you liked what you heard, make sure to go to filmmakeru.com and check out our courses. Use the code THECUTTINGROOM when you check out, that's all one word, THECUTTINGROOM, to get 10% off. This podcast was produced by myself, Jason Banky, and Evan Winch. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.